welcome to another of our Scottish Opera podcasts. And today I'm joined by Alex Riddick, who is the General Director of Scottish Opera. Hello, Alex. Good morning. Nice to meet you. And uh, this is an interesting one because we always start with a question along these lines. Uh, and I've been feeling this could go on for a while. But could you explain what your role in the company is? Yes. Um, uh, good. That's a good question. I, I think it's fair to say that my role in the company is, in many respects, like any medium-sized business, is to be the, uh, the link between the board and the organisation, and I am responsible to that board for the healthy functioning, good functioning, successful functioning of Scottish Opera. Uh, and across the, that's across all the subjects, the usual ones you'd expect, marketing, HR, finance, uh, in this case technical, um, and indeed all of our artistic outcomes. But in, you know, the joy of an opera company is that it has many, many teams, made up usually quite small teams, and my job, if you like, is to act as the interlocutor between all of those small teams, but working particularly closely with Stuart Stratford, our music director, mm-hmm. and he and I make all of the kind of uh, significant artistic decisions together in terms of repertoire, conductor, director, and then I tend to sort of lead more on the design of the route, though often a director, will he or she will come with a team of designers they're comfortable working with. Right. And then Stuart then goes away and leads on all the key music decisions, casting, um, uh, who's going to be the repetiteur, who's going to be the assistant conductor. So it kind of there's, once the titles are agreed, I should also say that the, ti- the, the planning of the seasons is not only exclusive to Stuart and I, but also marketing and finance. Uh, play a big part in that overall mm-hmm. matrix of decision making. You said before we started that um, the title general director is quite a specific one in terms of opera. Could you explain that? Uh, it, it, it's a title that sort of uh, uh, applies to many of the smaller or medium-sized companies and mm-hmm. it sort of straddles the territory somewhere between general manager and artistic director because often a lot of the smaller companies, those roles are enshrined in one post. Okay. Uh, how did you um, come to the role? What was your journey to the role? Uh, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> how, how long have you got? <laughs> uh, okay, so there's a couple of things that are probably worth noting. Um, uh, when I was at university in mm-hmm. Wellington, I was at Victoria University in Wellington in New Zealand, uh, and in fact, in the way of many students, I had various part-time jobs, mm-hmm. one of which, the biggest one, in fact, was working as a stagehand in the Opera House in Wellington, what was known as the State Opera House, because it was supported by state insurance. Uh, so I used to do a lot of casual work for New Zealand Opera when it came through, and therein began the fascination, not so much with working on stage, but with that particular art form. Uh, a number of years later, I was engaged to be the technical director of New Zealand Opera right and uh, about a year later it went bust ah, okay okay <clears throat> now worth noting that the key reason in my view that it went bust was because it hadn't paid enough attention to what the audience wanted to see right and hear so at the time I never realized I was learning that yeah. but you know obviously by osmosis etc fast forward a goodly number of years in which I had a, a lot of a portfolio career, a lot of, <laughs> you know, uh, particularly ending up as um, uh, the sort of chief executive of the New Zealand Festival in Wellington, mm-hmm. uh, 
if you've got time, I'm going to tell you how I got there. I was working for the sure. Asset, uh, Edinburgh Festival, 1989, no, 1990, uh, 1990, Edinburgh Festival. I was working for Bill Coots at the Assembly Rooms right. as part of the festival, sitting in my office, and a, uh, a fellow Kiwi called... Oh, it'll come to me. Okay, a fellow Kiwi walked past and said, oh, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> Kieran Goodwin. And he and I had toured with the New Zealand Ballet a number of years ago when I was, before that, when I was stage manager. So this would be in the mid-80s. And um, it transpired he was working for the New Zealand Festival, which had, in its sort of nascent early startup mm-hmm. days, and they had, within a very short space of time, ended up in quite a complicated financial mess. So uh, Kieran said, oh, he, at the t- it transpires he was the number two of the New Zealand Festival. And he okay. said, isn't it time you came back? You know, is, uh, there's a job at New Zealand Festival for a technical director. I think you should come back. No, 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 no. You know, I'm here. I'm happy. I'm at him. I don't want to go back to New Zealand. All right, okay. Anyway, a couple of days later, the phone rang, and it was Christopher Doig, who was not only the boss of the New Zealand Festival, but also had a ex- very, very big career as a Hilton tenor. So both in Australia and in Europe, and, okay. you know, and a real force of nature. Alex, it's Christopher Doig here. <laughs> uh, your nation needs you. It's time you came back. Yeah. <laughs> you got the call. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so anyway, went back and uh, over the years from 1991 through to 2002, I was kind of had a peripatetic career with the New Zealand Festival, culminating in the presentation of the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, which first ever outing from Edinburgh was in Wellington in 2000 at the turn of the millennium. Anyway, the long and the short of it was that by the time I'd finished at the New Zealand Festival as their chief exec, uh, the festival had, was in a good position financially and um, uh, it kind of, you know, it had established itself properly and indeed the tattoo had provided a war chest that enabled all sorts of other much less popular shows to be presented. Worth noting in New Zealand that there is very little public subsidy for the performing arts. Okay. So sponsorship, fundraising, commercial activity all forms part of the matrix. Uh, I was ending, I was in 2002, I had a call to make myself available to New Zealand Opera as their general director. Uh, They had, having gone bust, as I said earlier, they reformed through a series of pro-am companies and in the end the Arts Council said is their will and motivation to reform a professional entity. They had reformed and within two years already accumulated, this is 90, uh, 90, uh, 1999 to 2001, reformed in 99, by 2001 had already accumulated a lot of debt again. Right, okay. So the board said, listen, we can't let history repeat itself. They uh, found a new chair who had indeed been my chair at the New Zealand Festival. And Sir David said he would only take the role on if I would be general director. So they, long story short, I became general director of New Zealand Opera and happily and luckily within a very short space of time. In fact, the first production we did there was A Marriage of Figaro, Mm -hmm. which was so successful that we had to put extra performances on. So brilliant, clear the debt. Right. I'm thinking, crikey, this is easy. <laughs> 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 I've only ever thought that thought once. <laughs> and we thought, this, anyway, long story short, after four years at New Zealand Opera, uh, I'd kind of realised 
hitherto coming here, I'd realised that the piece of work that I could do for them had been done right. and that it needed someone slightly different to take it to its next place. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly because, referring to the title General Director, mm-hmm. that I, there was nothing that I didn't know about running the business or hadn't learnt about running the business, but actually in terms of my knowledge of the art form, and particularly singing and singers, it wasn't uh, good enough to be able to continue in that role as general director. So that kind of coincided with a phone call from uh, this side of the world, and um, long story short, I ended up coming here. uh, Started on the 6th of February, I think, 2006. Right. Um, and again, you know, came here and for every note of congratulations I got, I also got a note of commiseration, genuinely, yeah. from people going, really, what on earth have you done? Are you sure you've made the right decision and all that sort of stuff? You know, because Scottish Opera at the time was also, you know, in a wee bit of a... It had made some complicated stuff for itself right. that it then had not been able to undo. Okay. And that led to the government deciding that the only way to clear... to clear one particular problem which was a significant accumulated debt was to stop the company activity for a period of time 14 months use incoming funds to repay the debt and then start again and so I was engaged at that point of starting, starting again, again. Yep. before we move on to the thing at Scottish Opera I'm fascinated by what was it about that particular manager figure or do you think that made it so popular in New Zealand uh, <laughs> after having all the problems that you explained before yeah I, I think the thing that A there had been no Mozart done for some time. Right. Secondly, it was uh, I, I'd asked a, a very talented and successful theatre director, Colin McColl, to take a look at this title, and we'd also done it in partnership. The costumes were designed by uh, Trilise Cooper, a New Zealand fashion designer. Right. And we included in the foyers a series of fashion shows. And you, during the interval and before the show, and you think it all sounds a bit cheesy, but somewhere in the zeitgeist, all of these factors came together. You know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, Figaro is a long opera, but well directed. It it skips along, really lovely cast, beautiful production, and just the vibe was high. Right, and that's just so the thing. Bringing all these different aspects yeah. in as well. Yeah, so but but I mean the joy and the peril of showbiz that it only works when the vibe's high. Yeah, and there is no way of articulating it beyond that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's just the vibe's got to be high. Yeah. So I hinted at it a little bit there, but what challenges did you face uh, when you started um, all those years ago? Yeah, all those years ago. Yeah, yeah. fourteen, 14 well, years I, ago. Yeah. I know, I know my word. <coughs> Who'd have thought? Um, uh, I, I mean, I think the major challenges were essentially that morale was quite low. Right. I think, obviously, yeah. a goodly number of people have made, been made redundant. I think, from my perspective, the industrial framework was old-fashioned and I think needed to be thought through. And I think that, to an extent, we'd kind of broken our covenant with the audience right. which sounds incredibly pretentious it's not meant to be it's just uh-huh. that somewhere along the way we hadn't been I believe we hadn't been doing good enough work consistently you know and yeah. also that our dressing up box of repertoire had gone down a particular route that hadn't necessarily always appealed to all of our audiences yes. in the plural and so what I set about doing was essentially rebuilding 
the dressing up box. In other words, that we made sure we had some more Mozart, that we um, happily uh, were able to engage David McVicker to make mm -hmm. a new Traviata for us, which proved to be incredibly popular. Sir Thomas Allen was introduced to me, and he's, you know, as you know, made four productions for Scottish Opera, um, Barbara of Seville, Marriage of Figaro, Magic Flute, and of course Don Giovanni, mm -hmm. uh, three of which have been revived with us, again, even more successfully, and the fourth one will be any minute now without yeah. telling you exactly when. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, th I think it was... I think I had a determination to re-engage with the audience through the repertoire. Right. Secondly, to re-engage with the audience through the quality of in inverted commas. And I have, you know, I have not everyone agrees with my choice of phrase, but through the quality of our storytelling. Yeah. And it's easy to think that that might appear reductivist. It's not. It simply says, in my experience, that when you engage with an audience through all of the elements of the medium of opera, you know, mm -hmm. the, the music, the singing, the storytelling, the narrative qualities, the narrative truth even, when you get all of that stuff right on stage, then you have the most amazing evenings of opera. Yeah. You know, and when we get all of that right, and I think as the years have progressed, we've got more and more of it right, particularly with the addition of Stuart Stratford as yeah. our music director. You know, he's got a, a very good ear and eye for singers, and as his kind of, as he's flourished as our music director, so that for me has been the icing on the cake in terms of the work that we offer our audiences. So, in terms of when you began and, the, and with those challenges, that seems like a, a difficult thing to begin with because I take it, or maybe you can, because as you say, there was always like a blank slate. You'd had this time period where the opera wasn't running, but do you take it slowly or do you decide that this needs to be done quickly? Uh, I think the answer is a bit of both. Right. There was a couple of things that I thought we just have to get a grip on, and uh, we did. <clears throat> and there's some other ideas that took a minute or two to kind of germinate. Mm -hmm. But for example, I was conscious that as a national opera company, we didn't really have much to say about the art form in the 21st century. Okay. And I felt that it was really important that. As an, as, as an opera company that actually we rep did our best to represent that part of the ecology. It was pretty clear when I started that we had been, you know, we'd been in lots of dialogue with potential librettists and composers, but we'd not ever really found a mechanism to take it forward. And based on my experiences in New Zealand, both with the festival and the opera company, I realised that you could, you don't have to bet the family farm on a full length three act big chorus, big orchestra, right. you could imagine it much more lighter of touch uh, and also conscious that if you, as a person, as a creative, new to opera, it's a quite a lot more of a technical exercise than you think to be able yeah. to write a full length work. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, came up with the notion of 515, which was to bring together five creative teams each of whom was commissioned to write a short opera. Yeah. So it's the first time, I think, in a very long time that, certainly in the UK, that anyone had prescribed what the outcome might be or what, a, what the forces involved in that outcome might be. So we prescribed 15-ish minutes, uh, 15 players or so from the orchestra, in other words, a sort of section principal, 
or chamber band, I suppose, and then uh, a coterie of eight singers, two of each voice type-ish, that could be drawn on to populate each of the five operas. Right. And we presented all of it in one evening. And somewhat to my surprise, uh, it worked. <laughs> it worked amazingly well. I mean, and indeed, the other little lucky thing that happened was that I fell into conversation with the late David McClellan, mm -hmm. uh, the proprietor of Play Pie and a Pie. Yes, yes. Yeah, very fine man. And uh, through a haze at a party, he introduced me to the notion of Oren Moore. Yeah. And so our first year of 515, had a, they had their world premieres at Oren Moore. And you might think, mm. but actually the truth of it is it was the, perfectly, the most perfectly sized venue yeah. for the scale of Endeavour. And so we had sold out performances there and at the Hub in Edinburgh and a year or two later at uh, uh, the Alfinston Hall at, uh, at Aberdeen University. <clears throat> so over three years we presented 15 15-minute mm. operas, uh, each of which effectively sold out, yeah. you know, and so we also gave a lot of, you know, we, we kind of um, created an outlet for an awful lot of incredibly intrepid Scottish opera activity. So at this point, the company is growing again because you've got more of these um, ideas going on, and did that was that where the idea of... Um, taking the opera to different places and different spaces kind of began, which you now do. Uh, no, in fairness, um, <clears throat> uh, the, the Scottish Opera has been performing up and down the highways and byways of Scotland for well over 30 years. Right. <clears throat> but uh, it was something that I introduced at New Zealand Opera because I had already been at Scottish Opera in another life. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> when I was sitting in my office at New Zealand Opera in my first week or two, I thought to myself, we perform in Auckland and Wellington, but we're actually called New Zealand Opera. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and I know that's a little bit kind of whatever, but I just thought to myself, hang on a minute, we, we need to do more. The other joy of New Zealand is that it has about 10 or so thousand seat opera houses, which wow. are distributed around the nation, which are a sort of, you know, an outcome of the sort of civic pride and prosperity of the the. Uh, late 19th into the 20, early 20th century, both um, both the gold rush and um, uh, the kind of export of you know farm produce, etc. Mm -hmm. A lot of rural pro prosperity and pride. So I realised that we could maybe begin to visit many of those venues around New Zealand again. So we created a small ensemble, did a production of Cousy, and that went off and had a marvellous time and did really well. And to an extent, that's still going on to this day. And, but however, that was a model I'd inherited from Scottish Opera. Right. And the thing I can I'm just going to show you this. The thing I believe in most of all is the notion of being Scottish Opera, and that's why in pretty much all of our publications, see mm -hmm. the opening the book, yes. we have a map of Scotland, and in this current season, nineteen twenty, it identifies fifty-three communities that we go and visit. Yeah, from Aberdeen to Aliquippel. Indeed, and for me, that's the thing that distinguishes us. It's one of four kind of what I would describe as strands of DNA that distinguish us from any other opera company in the world. Okay. Actually, and it goes like this. So, bear with me. Yes. And feel free to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> but it goes like this. It goes kind of. First of all, our first strand of DNA is our commitment not only to work of a scale. I mean, in other words, as the composer intended it, with all you know, the orchestra, the chorus, uh, singers, and all the wobbly bits of scenery and lighting and all the other drama that goes on on stage. Mm -hmm. We do that in Glasgow in our home theatre, and then, unlike many companies, we then tour it to Edinburgh, Aberdeen, and Inverness. Okay, 
Second strand of DNA is our commitment to the reach of the rest of Scotland. Yeah. So that gets us... We've got a gene pool of about 110 smaller venues around Scotland that we could perform in. So we try to get to about 35 a year with our opera highlights. Uh, we've added, a number of years ago, we added a converted scenery trailer, which we converted into a mini version of the Theatre Royal. Mm-hmm. So that helps us pop up in all sorts of other communities. So that's the, our commitment to the geography of Scotland, if you like. You know, yeah. kind of, given that it's nigh on 40% of the landmass of the UK, but only five odd million people, yeah. you know, I think we've got a duty of care to all of the taxpayers in Scotland to make an operatic nuisance of ourselves as far and wide as possible. Uh, third strand of DNA is the commitment to education. Yes. And in, 20, in the calendar year 2022, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of our education endeavours. Uh, l- longest standing education uh, team of any opera company in Europe. Uh, and then the fourth strand of our DNA is our commitment to new work. Right. And by new work, it's either pieces like Anthropocene which had Mm -hmm. its world premiere at the beginning of last year which long story short is the outcome of 515 ultimately and also uh, Nixon in China Mm -hmm. late 20th century Um, so Stuart and I have we kind of hold this January February slot for our new work so when you put those four strands of DNA together uh, I argue ungrammatically that makes us the most unique opera company in the world. Um, well, you've got the, the, the four strands that you talked about <laughs> there, but we've done a, a few interviews now with people from many different departments, and I'm very interested about how you balance the support you give to all these different departments. Which, because you see, you've got your four strands in mind, that's what we're going to follow, but then you've got all the support behind those in all these different areas. I suppose. Uh, what it goes back to is when I started in 2014 I had a determination to ensure that each of the teams at Scottish Opera could be the should be the best it could be yeah you know and so first of all we work I uh, work closely with Cathy Shaw who's our head of HR and her mm-hmm. and I participate unusually we participate as you know, <laughs> we participate in all the second interviews. So we always do second interviews, but any post with any post. Uh, and Kath and I always participate in them. We assume that the people being brought forward by their managers, uh, you know, obviously can do the job. So we take that bit mostly for granted. What we want to do is what's the DNA of this person like? And if we chop their arm off, does it say Scottish Opera? Mm-hmm. You know, because... There are so many situations where any one individual can be our brand representative. Yeah. You know, and noting that Scottish Opera's brand was a tiny bit wobbly uh, 15 years ago, my determination was that at any point in time, anyone who, any person who worked for us would be seen as, you know, an embodiment of that new brand, which is about confident, good mannered, <laughs> you know, able to be articulate about who we are and to. Um, hopefully imbue most of our brand values most of the time and you know that's mainly about standards and excellence yeah and it makes complete sense yeah. if you want to yeah. be the best on stage then you really want the best yeah. behind the stage in, yeah. in every single way and it's certainly you know there are plenty of examples in other lives where the 43rd stagehand has been mischievous and the whole art 
has suffered. That's I'm not. I'm not down on stagehands. No, no. Don't worry, about that. Don't, don't worry about that, boys. <laughs> so, you know, but if you don't get all the little bits right, then the thing that we strive to do well, if not excel at, is the art. And if you don't get all this other stuff right, then the art doesn't work. Yeah. You know. And so, for example, we, we now run a really, you know, very high quality scenery building yes. team. You know, led by Ed and his joiners. When I first started, 14 years ago, there was one joiner. Mark did a marvelous job. Uh, just supporting what the rehearsal process, but essentially all our sets were built down south. Uh, that's fine, but you don't have as much control as if you mm. build it yourself, either, either over quality or delivery times. So it struck me that we'd be better served by restarting our workshop properly. Uh, um, and I was lucky that a very good friend of mine, Martin Streeter, who is a wonderful scenery builder, particularly with timber, came in and set the template for the workshop. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so when, when we then started to get the scenery right, which meant that that went more or less on schedule, it meant then there was the right amount of time to light. Yeah. And when there was the right amount of time to light, it meant that we were ready for when the singers came on stage. So you're not squandering time, because the one thing you can't buy back in the theatre world is time. Yes, yeah. you've got this real-time commitment to 7.15 next Tuesday, Nixon and China goes up. So you can do whatever you want, but every time you bugger about, you lose some of this time. Yeah. So, you know, opera is about, oddly, it's about discipline and organisation and timekeeping and all that sort of stuff. And the more you can get right before you get to the theatre, the better the outcomes are on stage. And I'm guessing communication as well, Absolutely. because you've got, uh, <laughs> a, if your scenery's being made down south and you don't see it until it arrives, then any communication that might be had between props or costume and scenery yeah. and all of that is kind of... Yeah, and I know again that sounds a bit reductive and it sounds a little bit kind of, uh, how does all of this matter? What matters yeah. is that if you squander the time, you then can't make it safe for the artists to do their best work. And by artists, it's singers, conductors, directors, players, chorus, you know, who all need to have all those layers of complexity secure so that when they're on stage, there are no mysteries. And is there a feeling that you want to, in fact, grow every year, uh, you know, to kind of extend your reach, or is that not something behind that you just want to do the best you can? I think, I think in terms of growth, I think we've hit, a number of years ago, we hit a kind of level of maximum activity. Right. That's about 2008-9. We were then uh, bumped into this recession, mm -hmm. and this recession has provided us with an opportunity to sharpen our focus on the opportunities available to us, which is a kind of bullshit way of saying it's been jolly tough. Mm -hmm. Okay, But my time running two arts organisations in New Zealand on almost no public support has meant that I'm uh, uniquely placed yeah. to know what that pain feels like. You know how so so when that pain comes, some of that pain comes around the corner here, you go, oh yeah, okay, here we go again. This is what it feels like. But I think it's worth saying that after, you know, since the, who'd have thought that 10, 11 would be halcyon days in terms of funding. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who'd have thought that, you know, and where we are now, it's jolly tough. And it's, you know, so uh, it's, it's an open, you know, it's quite, uh, we're quite open about the fact that our funding from our core fund of the Scottish Government has diminished over the years. Yeah. 
both in terms of quantum and indeed the impact of standstill funding. In itself, that's, that's life. We've for a long time done incredibly well with our fundraising, been very energised, you know, and you know, to a large extent we do, well, with our fundraising we do incredibly well, yeah. you know, across Scotland, and our box office sales are as strong as ever. Sure. But there comes a point when the aggregation of all of the diminutions, yeah, <laughs> trying to spell them all that, the aggregation of all the diminutions means that we're due another round of slightly more complex and difficult decisions. Sure. So I guess it's almost impossible to plan too far ahead because every year or every season there'll be a different challenge that'll come Yeah, up. it's a different season. Every season is different in itself. Yeah. Uh, the challenges are slightly different. Uh, however, in, in terms of uh, not giving up, one of the things we do th- do a lot of work on is our co-productions and mm-hmm. our making partnerships so for example uh, we're in, when Gondoliers mm-hmm. comes along in a few months time that'll be the third iteration of our partnership with Doily Cart mm-hmm. and so they become co-investors in the work we do and they this time we're also being joined by the State Opera of South Australia so the production has longer life uh, so we all get a bit more money it goes in the pot so, I mean, say it costs us one pound to make the show. Yeah. Uh, and if we've got a partner who puts in 50p, that either gives you a pound 50, or in our case, it gives us about a pound 10. Mm-hmm. So we then take a bit of a saving, but both parties get quite a good show. Uh, we've also um, had an interesting partnership with Opera Ventures, okay. which is the... Uh, charity run by John Barry, mm-hmm. founded and run by John Barry, formerly of English National Opera. And he brought us the notion of um, working in partnership with him on Greek, which premiered, uh, the production premiered at the Edinburgh Festival in 2000 and, I get to say 17, right. probably. Yep, 2017. And that partnership enabled us to do an extra opera, mm-hmm. Greek, that we would not have been able to do ourselves. Right. And then went on to uh, perform the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York. So, fast forward a few minutes, and last Edinburgh Festival, working with Opera Ventures and three other co-producers, we presented Breaking the Waves, yes, the, yes. the Edinburgh International Festival. That, in a, in a few weeks' time, will be going to the Adelaide Festival in Australia, and then a few months after that, back to Brooklyn. And those partnerships were so easy to secure right. because of the reputation of our work of Greek in Brooklyn. Right. So obviously you still stand and fall and rise on the quality of your work at any moment in time, mm-hmm. but the notion of Opera Ventures and Scottish Opera's partnership making good work enable Breaking the Waves just to kind of be a very straightforward thing to set up. And we're now in conversation with Opera Ventures about a further project for 22 or 23. And this allows you to increase your international reputation? Well, uh, just the amount of work we can provide for everybody and uh, our international reach, as well as bringing some really curious and extraordinary productions here, making them for Scottish audiences. Um, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question. Either I'm going to say, do you have any... Anything you consider your bigger, biggest successes, or you might rather to see what were your personal highlights of your time here? These might be two different things. Yeah, it's a good question. I, in, in reflecting on my time here to date, uh, I think the thing I'm most proud of is the number of younger people we've had flow through this organisation. 
uh, with our young company that we started uh, about 11 years ago that you know is a home for 14 to 21 year olds who want to get to know a bit more about our art form mm-hmm. about the success of our under 26 10 pound ticket which you know these days those folk represent about 10 percent of our audience uh, and indeed when you look around the foyers uh, all of those um, stereotypical impressions of an opera audience that just don't hold true anymore. Honestly, you look around our audience, the foyers and the audience, the audiences are made up of the full age And they absolutely are, I would you know, say, which I didn't expect when I came on to start reviewing yeah. them. They absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, I'm really, uh, really, really proud of our Emerging Artists Programme, which started again about 11 years ago. Uh, worth, I think it's worth saying the reason I felt it was important to start it was that I was conscious that a goodly number of younger singers who were training in Scotland were at the time, in my view, not well enough prepared for a career in in opera. And I thought it was our duty to try and ensure that as they made their inevitable migration to London and or other epicentres of opera, that they had every possible opportunity to be as fully fledged as they could be. Okay. So we think of it, I think of it, I suppose, as a bit of a performance enhancement program, but it's also about life in an opera company. Uh, and it's, we try to get rid of all the cliches. It's about hard work. It's mm. about doing our small scale touring or covers or understudies or small roles and just generally learning your job. So kind of a semi hemi demi apprenticeship in some ways. We also realized that uh, there was a need for repetitors, those guys who play for rehearsals. Uh, we've also added um, a costume trainee yeah. to our Emerging Artists Programme and indeed recently uh, an associate uh, producer. And that is a function of the growth of our international touring. I was looking for someone to help deal with the workload of touring, realised that there was no one who had opera specialisms in this area. Right. So we thought, well, we better train them ourselves. We also uh, have... Um, done a lot to sustain the skills within our artisan departments, particularly within joinery and costume making. So we have a costume trainee, an emerging artist costume trainee, but also there's a number of younger guys in the workshop who we've put through as much training as possible, all of which is to ensure that we're doing our bit for the sector, we're also doing our bit for the performing arts in Scotland, but we're also doing as much as we can to help ourselves. So I'm really proud of all of those young people who have come through this organisation and I also recognise that for many younger people, uh, jobs, they're not forever jobs anymore. Yeah. And so a lot of people come through and go on and flourish with other arts organisations. I think that's marvellous. Yeah, of course. I think it's part of our duty of care to that nation, in inverted commas, to ensure that we're a really, you know, a really active and responsible participant in preparing people for life in the performing arts. Uh, and if I can finish just with a question which you may not be able to answer. Could you say you have a highlight of uh, in terms of performance that you can think of here? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I, no, 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 <laughs> I, I'm prepared to go for it. I, I've got two highlights. Okay. One of which, three, I'm only going to go for three highlights here actually. Uh, my first highlight was uh, David Vickers' um, Traviata mm-hmm. that he made for us. It was just, you know, uh, Tanya McCallum design and it was just a really gorgeously authentic considered response to the challenges of that piece it wasn't chocolate box it wasn't throwaway it was just bloody good and the audiences completely agree with us my second highlight was Sir Thomas Allen's uh, Barbara of Seville mm-hmm. 
for no reason. A, two reasons. One, I don't know. It, it always makes me. I mean, the opera makes me smile. Uh, his production, you know, Tom sung all of those roles, and he knows how to tell those stories. So I, I've always been enchanted by Sir Tom's production. Okay. Uh, and also, it also for me represented a slight change in direction, artistic direction for the company, right, okay. where we brought, you know, a piece that not everyone necessarily favours, but we brought it to the audience's attention, did it as well as we could, and the audience gave it huge thumbs up. And I think thirdly, my own, my, my other really interesting, for me, the other interesting piece was uh, a pair of pieces. One was Ghost Patrol mm-hmm. by Stuart McRae and Louise Welsh, yeah. which led to their Devil Inside. Yeah. And I think there was a really interesting kind of visceral energy through the work that they did with the director, Matthew Richardson, and the three of them found this way of telling boys' stories in a way that we, are, we don't see much of on the opera stage in the UK. Well, I think that is the perfect place to leave it. So thank you very much, Dr. <laughs> Alex. Very good. And we'll be back soon uh, with someone else from Scottish Opera. Cheers.